The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV, Dateline, Investigative Reports, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, Araldo, and lots of other shows. She presented her own 90-minute PBS television special last year, and they air that from time to time. It's called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. What's our show about tonight? Well, we have a great and a very interesting show, and we have a fabulous guest from north of the border. Wait to hear his incredible accent. And he is a professor and an author. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Colin Bennett. Dr. Colin Bennett is a professor in the Department of Political Science. And by the way, political science, he teaches about American political science in Canada. Um, And he's at the University of Victoria in Canada. From 1999 to 2000, he was a fellow with the Harvard Information Infrastructure Project at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. His research interests have focused on the comparative analysis of information privacy protection policies at the domestic and international level. One of his his new books is called The Governance of Privacy, Policy Instruments in in Global Perspectives, and I have that right in front of me here. He has also published Regulating Privacy, Data Protection and Public Policy in Europe and the United States. He's also co-editor of um, Visions of Privacy, Policy Choices for the Digital Age, and then, of course, he's co-author of the book I just talked to you about, The Governance of Privacy. He's published articles in Public Administration, uh, International Review of Administrative Sciences, Policy Options, the Journal of Public Policy, Governance, Science, Technology, and Human Values, and many, many more. You can learn a lot more about him at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. But he is uh, really a privacy expert and speaks and has a project on the subject of privacy advocacy. So welcome all the way from Canada. We appreciate you joining us, Colin. Thanks very much, Marie. Uh, May I call you Colin, Doctor? Please, 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 please yes. <laughs> okay, so so tell us about your goals in this uh, in one of your new publications, the governance of privacy. Um, our goals, um, well, um, to write a book that people, a lot of people bought, and uh, <laughs> in the, both in uh, um, the United States as well as uh, around the world. Um, <clears throat> uh, as an academic, you know, you tend to you know write a lot of books, and they don't necessarily get uh, 
published uh, in a lot of places, and they don't. The print run doesn't tend, tend to be that that large. But we're very successful with this particular one, I think. Um, and we decided um, that the literature on the protection of privacy, both in the United States and overseas, has over the years been dominated either by legal experts who are, you know, telling you about the law or international agreements, uh, or by technology specialists, computer scientists, and so on. And Charles Rabb and I are both uh, from political science departments, and we understand political theory, and we write about power. And we believe that at root, the question about privacy is about the relationships between individuals and large public and private organizations, and therefore it's basically an issue of power. And so we are political scientists, and we've looked at the subject matter from that perspective. And we also realized that over the years, and particularly since the advent of the Internet, the way that this subject has been debated and resolved in political circles um, has changed. And so the question really is, how has it changed? How has the debate altered over the years, and how have the solutions that have been proposed for the protection of privacy um, altered as a result of the Internet and other international networks? So that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell. Well, Colin, so when you talk about the evolution of privacy, how are we defining privacy now? Well, um, it's, it's shifted in a number of respects. Um, I, you know, initially, back sort of 30, 40 years ago, people tended to see privacy as an individual right, as something that was a civil liberty that was based on, you know, essential constitutional principles. And indeed it is that. But it's also about a number of other things. Um, it's, it's about trust, <clears throat> for one thing. Um, and what we've seen with the Internet is that privacy has been advocated, promoted um, by um, governments and by business uh, in order to get people to buy things over the electronic networks. And so therefore, it's been demonstrated that people are reluctant to give up their personal information online unless they trust the organization's concerned. So it's been um, redefined to some extent as an issue of consumer trust. It's also been, been redefined in terms of risk and how we need to uh, manage the risk in a technological environment. So there's been some subtle shifts in the way that, that we talked about this issue. And um, one of the conclusions we've reached is that um, it's no longer simply an individual issue. It's a social problem. Um, it's, a, it's a question for society to decide about how much uh, surveillance is actually appropriate how much um, monitoring of individuals is appropriate on a, um, on a societal level, uh, over and above the question about whether damage and intrusion is done to, to individual citizens. Right, and, and we've seen since 9-11 and, and that the issue of privacy and technology and security are really in a, in a tension. Because, sure. if you know, if you give up privacy to get security, or at least if there's that illusion that if you give up privacy, you're going to get security, um, then, you know, how, how does that come across now to, with regard to politics? Well, that, that's, you know, that's a common assumption. There's no question that uh, since 9-11, privacy has been under pressure from a variety of different sources organizations and and because of the war on terror and the uh, uh, the agenda for homeland security etc more and more personal information is being collected through different means by different institutions 
and that is putting extraordinary pressure on this on this value but privacy and security are not necessarily antithetical to each other um, there are ways that um, with intelligent public policy and intelligent technology you can in fact have both and it's sometimes assumed that in order for example it to have secure airports that we necessarily have to give up uh, our privacy we necessarily have to give up personal information and one of the things that we contend in this book as many others have contended and, and shown demonstrably I think is that they do not it, it, it's a value that does not necessarily have to be sacrificed sacrificed um, because we want important values like you know the security of travel right although there is that that fear that's often um, you know in, injected into the situation to say well if you don't do this we're you know if you don't give up this privacy then right. then you know something's going to happen and and, right. and it's going to be your fault because you fought this and you're right. against that's, security yeah it, that's all part of the discourse and those people who have been privacy advocates uh you know have been on the defensive frankly and they've been marginalized and then to some extent they've been considered you know um out there on the fringes who are not engaging with the real debates and do not not understand the real threat that America and the Western world is under, and so on, so on and so forth. Right. And and um, you know we, we we think that that kind of uh, uh, rhetoric is uh, counterproductive, and uh, in the long run does not um, uh, neither promotes the privacy value nor promotes effective security. You know, Colin, I saw on your website you had a PowerPoint about who are the privacy advocates, and you went. In, this must have been some lecture that you had. Tell us a little bit about what you think, because it is true sometimes as a privacy advocate myself and one who considers yeah. herself a privacy professional, um, that uh, sometimes people look at me like, oh, you know, you just don't get it. You know, this yeah. is about our yeah. lives. This is about our security. Yeah. This is yeah. about our safety. So, so who are, in terms of what you would call, who are the privacy advocates and what is the issue with being a privacy advocate? Um. Well, good question. <laughs> I mean, they're not <laughs> all the, the same. My, that's the subject of my next book. Oh, um, good. Well, give us a teaser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not sure I've completely figured out the answer, frankly. But at one level, you know, we're all privacy advocates in the sense that every individual citizen, you know, has at some level an interest in his or her privacy. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been demonstrated that is it a fundamental human need um, in various contexts to do things in private. It's conditioned by our culture, it's conditioned by our generations, it's conditioned by gender and all kinds of other interesting issues. But nevertheless, um, it is a, um, uh, you know, it, it is a fundamental value. And so at that level, you know, you consider everybody a privacy advocate. But I understand your question, <laughs> because in the, in the media, uh, you see, you know, reports now, privacy advocates want this, privacy advocates want that, or right. privacy advocates oppose this, et cetera, et cetera. And it's right. not clear who, who we're talking about. Right. And so uh, it, my view is that there are different forms of privacy advocate. I mean, there are the activists, there are people who work within civil liberties organizations, consumer organizations, nonprofit sector, et cetera, a complex array of different institutions and organizations uh dynamic, fragmented, uh, volatile, uh, normally underfunded, uh, but nevertheless quite important. And then there are, um, you know, advocates who um, you know, work in the media and who are journalists. There are advocates who work in academia, such as myself, and have to kind of balance their academic interests and the goals and values with, with advocacy. Uh, there are advocates who are consultants, 
you know, and who at the same time is uh, trying to advocate for this issue are also doing training for employees, consulting with clients and other things like that. And trying to enlighten corporations. In trying to enlighten <laughs> like corporations, me. sure. Exactly, yeah, sure. Um, there, are, there, are, there are advocates who are also developing software. You know, there are technologists who uh, believe uh, uh, strongly in the value and have been over the last 20, or 20 years or so developing encryption software, uh, privacy-enhancing technologies. So it's a, it's a complex, um, I would call it an advocacy coalition if you like, mm-hmm. um, uh, with different interests, uh, different focus. Uh, one of the problems is that, you know, privacy spans, you know, every single political issue you can think about. And some advocates, you know, may be very interested in the health issue, but not so much interested in airline issues, or maybe very interested in criminal justice questions, but very little interest in direct marketing. So you have this um, fluctuating set of, set of groups that... that uh, uh, come in and out of debates depending on the focus of the subject. Right. There isn't the kind of collaboration, I think, that would probably have more power. Um, that's, that's another question that I'm trying to pose. You know, uh, w- what is it about this issue? You see, other, other issues, other issues like this have, in fact, generated more coordinated, coherent social movements, you know, more, right. more, more pressure. Um, and privacy hasn't. And to a large extent, the developments that have occurred in Western societies, legal developments, international uh, agreements, and so on, have come not so much from pressure from the bottom up, but more from, you know, elites bargaining among, you know, elites of the private sector and the, and the public sector. And so one of the things I'm trying to figure out is, um, is that the way it has to be, you know? Um, the network of advocates is fragmented, uh, people are playing different roles, um, it's quite volatile, it's quite dynamic. Is that something that we've just got to live with, with this issue? Or, you know, will the issue mature to an extent that, um, you know, uh, there are, to put it, put it um, you know, frankly, uh, an organization called Privacy International becomes as famous as Amnesty International, right? Right, right. Uh, or, uh, uh, um, the uh, um, some of the major privacy groups, you know, become uh, household names like environmental groups. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm trying to think think it through. You know. Well, I can't wait to read that book because. <laughs> well, I mean, you can have me on question. the show when that's done, but I, I'm not, no right. promises about when it's going to be published. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, so you were talking about that we live in this globalized world. It's a borderless world. So, how are the policies? interrelated and often at odds with each other. I know, for example, Canada, I had your privacy commissioner on this show, and she was wonderful. <coughs> yeah. And and I could see where there is a great difference in the way that we deal with privacy, and obviously the EU versus the United States uh-huh. in terms of privacy. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, you know, I think I think the, the the principal thing that's happened over the last twenty or thirty years has been that assumptions have cha- have changed about how you solve the problem. Um, when the issue first rose to the agendas of advanced industrial states, you know, and that was in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. I mean, the problem was about government, and it was about data banks. You know, it was about mainframe computers, and Consequently, the solutions were very, very legal, right? The Mm -hmm. idea was that, you know, if you pass a law uh, which gives individuals certain rights over the personal data that's processed about them, and if you oblige organizations to use that information responsibly, 
and you know, you pass a law and you set up oversight machinery uh, in order to, um, uh, you know, receive complaints from citizens, then that's all that's necessary, right? All you need is a sort of legal solution to the problem. <laughs> and, you know, if people are, uh, if people's privacy invaded, then the law kicks in and, you know, lawyers do their thing. That, that assumption has changed, and now what we're seeing um, is a general recognition that that is not sufficient, that in addition to law, you, need, you certainly need international agreements, because it's an international problem, and there are a number of international agreements which speak um, you know, to the issue of what happens when data flows outside of a, a national border, and what protections therefore arise in other situations. Um, there's international agreements through the European Union that you mentioned, through the OECD, uh, now through APEC, the Asia-Pacific uh, Council, number of them, and they all say somewhat different things. Um, you also need um, self-regulation, uh, codes of practice, um, standards, uh, methods by which business in particular can demonstrate that it you know, has privacy-friendly practices. And you also need to design technology so that privacy, you know, is, uh, designed, you know, is designed into new systems rather than added on later. That is the privacy-enhancing technologies goal. So all of these various instruments, um, you know, become a, become a kind of mosaic of different solutions. And one of the purposes of the governance of privacy is to analyze them, to look at how they do and do not fit together and uh, to critique the way that some of them have, in fact, been um, used in various, in various contexts. Now, so I can get people excited about reading your book. Tell us, about, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the differences. I know um, that when you talked about the data flows in our country, in the United States, companies collect every bit of data about this and store it and share it. And what what is the difference in Canada? Canada is, is part of the European Union, correct? No, no, you're not. But you have similar similar. Uh, no, yeah, what, no, oh, no. What okay. you mean is we we have passed a law which the European Union has uh, uh, has um, uh, deemed adequate. Okay, uh, and 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 um, equivalent really to to the to the European laws. So in other words, Canada is a safe place. Right. For Europeans to send their data. Right, right. Because you're, you're, yeah. Okay, so explain what you mean by that. So that people, you know, many people buy things from other countries on the Internet. Yeah. We, we obviously do so much business with other countries. And so I don't think that most people have a clue about these data flows and what it means and what the difference is. So explain to us the difference between the United States, how we uh, yeah. deal with data flow versus Canada. Yeah. Okay, well, um, we in Canada now have um, some pretty comprehensive laws in place so that anywhere in the society if personal information is collected about you, it has to be used in a responsible fashion. And what that means is um, uh, you know, it's not used for purposes other than those for which it's collected. Now, the laws are complicated, and I can't, I don't want to get into the details. Um, and we really don't get into the details too much in the, in the book, right, because right. as we say, it's, it's not a legal text. Right. Um, the problem in the United States is that the private sector is only partially regulated. People have rights with respect to a few sectors in the American private sector, but not entirely. 
Um, and so it's a very, very complicated patchwork of state and federal laws. And there was an explicit policy decision back in the 1970s that this is the way that the American government would, in fact, try and solve this problem. Um, and it has caused a great deal of confusion, not only for consumers, but also for certain businesses, you know, where you have different laws in different states and, uh, and, and compliance costs, etc. Um, it's not untypical of the way that, you know, the United States, you know, regulates, um, and I understand the reasons why it regulates the way it does, but nevertheless, it creates problems. And therefore, at the moment, the, Amer the United States is the only advanced industrial state in the world, only OECD state, etc., which does not have a comprehensive privacy protection statute that applies to both public and private sector, and which is overseen by some kind of regulatory body or oversight commission um, to which citizens might complain and um, have their rights exercised. And that, um, and that means that we are the only advanced, economically advanced country yeah. that does not have a privacy commission. Uh, that's uh, that's correct. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Although I mean, we have a patchwork quilt where yeah. each each governmental agency has a privacy yeah. officer, uh, but you know now they at the, are fed, at the federal level. That right. that should be the case. Yes, right, right. But 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 you know that's just in relation to the Federal Privacy Act, which right. just just relied just just. Um, applies to the federal exactly so there's an there's a whole range of, of enormous array of, of institutions throughout the united states that are simply not 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 regulated right. at all or are you know subject to you know um self-regulation codes of practice voluntary codes a few state laws here and here and there um there has been some pressure however um at, in congress uh, and uh, indeed from some major companies to get a comprehensive federal statute in place. Right. Microsoft, for example, has been uh, lobbying for such a, uh, uh, a, a statute for, for a number of months now. Um, I'm not entirely familiar with where that process is in Congress, um, and nor am I uh, you know, confident that you know, the, the, the legislation that has been proposed you know, is adequate under European uh, rules or Canadian rules for that matter is consistent with what we're doing um, but nevertheless there has been a recognition among some very very major corporations in the US that this patchwork is mm, not only not good for privacy but not good for business either well Colin a lot of that has to do with our security breach law uh -huh. which you know what has been a patchwork that began in California where we have a, a breach law that that yeah. began in California saying that if you are a, co a company or actually even a governmental entity in California yeah. and you have electronic information that's been acquired by a an unauthorized person uh -huh. then you have a duty that's the trigger to notify all affected individuals uh -huh. and that's the big push by Microsoft and the big companies yeah, is yeah. they that's really what they're talking about yes. it's yes. not about we need you know uh, a, a privacy commission to oversee this it's more about let's preempt let's all preempt of the state state laws, state laws that have been too stringent that are bothering us. That's yes, really I, what it's been. <laughs> I, I, I understand. I understand. But yeah. I do like the idea. I mean, when we when Clinton was in power, and I'm not saying that um, he did the best thing of anything, but at least he did have a privacy czar, 
which yes. was, you know, uh, who we had on our show, by the way. Yes. And, and, and that was at least an inkling of the idea of having somebody at, in a high uh, power to, to at least oversee the yes. privacy issues. Yes. And it, your privacy commissioners are, are even have more power than just an ombudsman, don't they? Um, they, it varies. Uh, some of them just have ombudsman powers, like Jennifer Stoddart, whom you had on your show, I believe, at the at, uh, at, at No, the we had Anne. Anne oh, well, Anne Kavukian is in Ontario. Yes. Uh, at the provincial level. And she and some of the provincial commissioners do have enforcement powers, and yes. they can, in fact, you know, tell a business to stop doing something, right. uh, or at least a government agency to stop, stop doing something. At the federal level, however, it's mainly ombudsman powers. Look, you know, I understand that the United States is a different country, has a different constitutional system, different federal system, and I would not, certainly not be advocating that uh, the U.S. system, you know, should simply emulate what's been going on in other other countries right. without, you know, adapting it to the obvious you know, cultural and institutional differences. Um, differences of the United sure. States, um, but but you know it, it is um, it is troubling and it creates problems not only for American citizens but of course for overseas citizens as well, including Canadians. You know because a lot of our data is processed south of the border and therefore the, all of that has to be managed through contract and outsourcing arrangements and so on and so forth. Um, and yes, you uh, even use our credit bureaus. Experian is in Canada, yep. right? And Equifax. Yep. And so you, yeah, you're you're subject to a lot of our companies and what they're doing. Uh, oh, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, and it, it's complicated. Um, whenever um, whenever we book air tickets up here, um, you know, uh, if I if I'm flying from say say from uh, Victoria to to Toronto and I book my air ticket on Air Canada uh, through a travel agent. Typically, uh, that information will be, uh, that reservation will take place through the Galileo network, and all of that information is stored in the United States, in, uh, in Colorado. Hmm. Not, clear, not clear what rights individuals have over that information. You know, uh, it's... Um, and that you know. information is shared. I mean, now you know all of our information for flying. I just booked uh, to go to Toronto, and I know that that information, even though I did it with you know, Air Canada, I'm sure that they're going to share that information uh, with, you know, my government, right? Well, I mean, we, we, we don't know these things for sure. You see, <laughs> Air, Canada, Air Canada itself, I mean, booking an airline ticket is a very complicated process. I mean, you, you said you looked at my website, and there's a, there's a paper on there called What Happens When You Book an Airline Ticket, and it's, <laughs> it's incredibly complex. And it depends how you book. It depends, you know, whether it's through frequent flyer programs, through the airline directly, through travel agents, etc. Uh, it, you know, it depends on the journey you're taking, uh, what preferences you have, and so on, and so on, and so forth. Um, but you know, in Canada, if I book a flight directly through Air Canada, then Air Canada is regulated by our federal um, private sector privacy law and uh -huh. should not be transferring that information to other organizations without my knowledge and consent. Uh -huh. um, and now you know, you have... otherwise, if I found out about it, I could complain to the privacy commissioner who will reach a finding and um, you know and, and tell them to clean up their act. Do I'm you not have they a... do, and I have no evidence of that, but but you know that's an example of what 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 we can do you know in relation to our airlines that Americans could not. Right, right. Now, you you have the opt in versus opt-out. For example, in our country, 
We have, in 1999, you know, we passed the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which Uh basically is a federal law that says that companies that do business with you have every right to share that information with third parties unless you opt out. Yes. And they, you have no right to opt out for their affiliates, and they could have 100 affiliates. Yeah. You have no right. Now, in Canada, it not it the opposite? You are opt-in? In other words, a company... It, it, depend, it depends on the sensitivity of the data. And okay. It's the, same, it, um, the rules up here um, are that, you know, if, if the data is deemed in any way sensitive, then it has to be a positive consent or an opt-in. Okay. So, okay. That's... So, so health information, for example, if it's collected, you know, the, the organization should assume that that's sensitive data and should not be disclosing it to other organizations unless there's good legal reasons for doing so or unless it's in your interest to do so, you know, without your positive consent. They should not assume that you want that shared unless you, unless you opt out. How about now, financial privacy? Well, financial, financial privacy, you know, is a bit of both, you know, because some things in the financial world would be considered incredibly sensitive, other things. So there's, in fact, you know, little bits of, dis- there's certain, certain disputes about that, and it depends on, you know, the extent to which the data is anonymized and so on and so forth. Um, I'm not saying that the distinction between sensitive and insensitive is in any, is in any way uh, clear cut. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, the, the Privacy Commissioner's uh, rulings on this subject, you know, are, there's an evolving jurisprudence about, about these issues. But the basic rule is that if an organization, if there's any uh, belief that the uh, data might be sensitive, then the organization should, in fact, assume that there should be an opt-in or a positive consent option. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's the safest thing for an organization to do, to get consent and to do that due, due diligence. Now, that costs more money. Right, uh, right. You know, it, and, it, and it means that uh, organizational databases are less, um, are, are smaller, you know. Right. Um, nevertheless, you, you are uh, only then getting um, the information of those people who truly do wish their information to be shared and truly do wish those products and services that they're going to get marketed about to actually come through their mailbox. Wow, it is, you know, it, it's crazy in every country, but which country does the best job of protecting the privacy of its citizens? Um, I'm going to dodge that question, but I'm going to, I'm going to, um, <laughs> okay. give you a, I'm going to give you an academic answer, if I may. Okay, I, that's what it, I would it, expect from a professor. It, and it's a, <laughs> it, it depends. <laughs> um, I, I think what you really need to look at is this. Um, I think uh, those countries that do the best, Right, are those which have a comprehensive privacy or data protection law, which enforce, which enshrine in the statute the familiar fair information principles, the statutory principles, uh, which give rights to citizens, um, where that statute is overseen by an oversight body, a data protection commissioner who has some power, you know, who has some regulatory power. Um, where there's a supportive political culture, we think that's extremely important. Um, privacy commissioners generally cannot be assertive on these issues unless there's strong support within public opinion and within the political culture for this value, and I think that's very important. And uh, we also believe that that is, in fact, the case in the United States to a large extent, perhaps less so in other countries. 
Um, it's helpful when there's a group of activists who are willing to raise alarm bells and um, uh, you know can publicize abuses uh, in the media and so on when when they occur. Um, and it's also helpful when there is a readily available set of security and privacy solutions through the marketplace, privacy-enhancing technologies. So the conditions for you know, good privacy protection, we would say, are the following. Is there any one country which has all of those factors in place? I don't think so. No. Mm-mm. You know? Um, I think That's you know, an idea. the United States actually scores really, really well in terms of the network of activists. And a lot of the time, the... Um, uh, alarm bells are sounded first of all in the U.S. Right. through, um, you know, uh, through Epic. the activities of people like Epic and Mark yes. Rosenberg and, yes. uh, and the ACLU and so on and so forth. And often the privacy commissioners are, uh, elsewhere are trying to sort of play play catch up to this, right. um, even though they have a stronger set of laws in place. So you know, it's it's it's. Um, you know, you have to sort of look at all of those variables and see, you know, how different countries score on each each one. And, you know, that varies over time as well. You know, you you spoke about, you know, one of the conditions is a country that values the fair information principles. And, you know, that's not a bi- as big of an issue in, in our country. I mean, we have some of the fair information principles with our Fair Credit Reporting Act, but I don't think people, and here we are sitting at the University of California right on campus. Could you explain what you mean by the fair information principles? Well, they were actually invented in the United States in the early 70s. Um, a set of statutory principles which essentially, um, uh, you know, form the basis of most law around the world uh, and which, um, uh, as well as international organizations, and um, just to sort of go down them, if you like, uh, yes, organizations should be accountable for all the personal information in their possession. Right. right. They should identify the purposes for which information is processed out of before the time of collection. Right? Not, right? not collect information, you know, surreptitiously without explaining why it's being collected. Which happens all the time here. Uh, yeah, especially All on the, the time. Yes, I um, mean... It should only collect personal information with the knowledge and consent of the individual. Right. You know, there's right. exceptions, obviously, you know, in the law enforcement context. Um, should limit the collection of personal information to that which is necessary for pursuing the identified purposes. Right. Right. And not be used for another purpose. In other words, collect. And the next one should not use or disclose personal information for purposes other than those identified, except with the consent of the individual. The the Europeans call that the finality principle, you know, Uh that there's a boundary around the way personal information is used. Um, organizations should retain information only as long as necessary, get rid of it. That information should be accurate, complete, up-to-date. All of this is not only in the interest of the individual, but also in the interest of the organization. Right, right. right. Um, and should protect that personal information with appropriate security safeguards. Um, and we've seen, you know, daily over the last uh, sev- several years, um, security breaches, some right. of which are really quite harrowing, you know, hard drives appearing on garbage dumps, you know, employees taking home CD-ROMs with, uh, with you know, personal information on them and so on and so forth. Right. Um, organizations should be open about their policies and practices, you know, on, right. that, on the website. There should be clear, unambiguous statements about what is done. And they should allow data subjects, so the individual, in other words, access to their personal information. Right, right. right. Say, okay, you can have your, look at your personal information and 
gives them the ability to amend it if it's inaccurate, incomplete, or obsolete. Now, what I've just stated there... And, is and the one last thing is the enforcement. They should be able to enforce their rights if... Uh, if uh, yes, sure. Yes, sure. Yeah, there, should be, there should be mechanisms to, um, you know, either go to the company and can complain and get get uh, get redress or if that is uns- insufficient to um take the issue elsewhere right right so uh you know uh, um and and those those principles the way i've articulated them and that that's you know from from our book it, you know uh, they vary in various respects and you know in various international agreements there's not right. there's not you know absolute common understanding about those but there's a pretty high level of convergence um, and they appear in different forms in, you know, privacy protection laws throughout the world, in the guidelines from the OECD, in the European Data Protection Directive, as well as in certain laws and codes of practice within the United States. Um, so there's generally um, very little debate about the principles themselves. You don't find anybody in this business talking, saying that they're against privacy. Right. right? They will say that, you know, well, it has to be balanced against other, right. you know, <laughs> commercial entrants, right? And so, on yeah. and so, so on and so so on and so forth. But nobody the, says the big no. one here, Colin, is like, well, if we don't share this information, then prices are going to go up. It's going to cost uh, you more if uh, we can't uh, share this that, information. That's a, that's, that's a common and, you know, right. argument. Right. Um, but, but you see, you, you know, there's, there's very, you know, there are debates about these principles, and, and you know, there, there are, there are, you know, uh, and sometimes quite heated debates. But the whole idea that you should have, you know, a set of principles in place which gives individuals certain rights and organizations certain obligations for the, for the personal information they collect is something that the vast majority of people in this business would accept. And the question then comes down to how do you actually enforce them? Do you do it comprehensively through a comprehensive law that, that you know, applies to everybody? Or do you do it sectorally, as has happened in the United States, and the assumption that, you know, the needs of different organizations and sectors are different? Um, and do you enforce it through the courts or through some regulatory agency or through some ombudsman? And that tends to be where the, where the disputes arise and where the variation in national approaches emerge. From, from what we've seen in our country, the self-regulation does not seem to be very effective. Now, you know, people will differ with me, yeah. but, you know, it seems to me like when we have this Comprehensive Fair Credit Reporting Act, that's the closest thing that we have yeah. Yeah. to the fair information principles where people have a right to see their information, to correct it, to, um, you know, to enforce well, it, know, to they, limit they its cl- collection, and to limit its sharing with other people. Yeah. We, we really don't have anything that's like that, except for the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Uh, well, those principles appear in the, in the 1974 Privacy Act. You which, know, which that's being, you know, kind of whittled down now, too, at least from... Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. But they appear in certain state, state laws, you know, and as I, I say, right. um, they, they were, in fact first articulated um, in the early 70s in, in the United States and, and borrowed to some extent by other countries. We have uh, that. We actually have that in our information practice. California Information Practices Act mm-hmm. is more stringent than the, fair, uh, than the federal Privacy mm-hmm. Act. And mm-hmm. it, we do have those information principles, but that only applies to government, not to com- commercial entities. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so do you think um, that voluntary measures seem to be working in Canada? 
Uh, they can do. Um, uh, it, it depends. One of the things we sort of analyze in the book is, is you know, the conditions under which voluntary measures might work. Um, you know, it, they, sometimes they're effective and sometimes they're not. Um, in Canada, uh, there's plenty of scope for businesses in particular to adopt voluntary measures or self-regulation, but within the larger statutory framework. So companies will have codes of practice, and they'll have guidelines, and they'll do privacy impact assessments. So there's all kinds of things that can be done uh, in terms of self-regulation within that larger larger statutory framework. But generally speaking, my, my analysis would be that, that these um, self-regulation tends to be more potent, or tends to work better uh, when you have businesses that are exposed to international uh, competition, okay, right. and mm-hmm. therefore, you know, they have to comply with the laws overseas, and therefore, you know, they might just as well ramp up their standards, um, you know, worldwide. And there are certain companies that I think have done that, you know, they've decided that, well, we're going to have to live with these European laws anyway, let's just sort of do everything, you know, to that one standard. Oh, Chris, that, that's not self-regulation, though. That there, there is that standard. Well, it, but it is, but it, but it is within some countries. You know, it's it's a company making a choice that they do uh, business we, or they don't do business. We are regulated in some countries. We yeah. might just as well you know, self-regulate to that same standard elsewhere. And you know, so the, so there are, there are examples, uh, the examples of that. I think the other very important thing is out of publicity. Um, yes, where companies have been outed, um, where they where they're practices have been exposed, either fairly or unfairly, the effect of publicity has been quite potent, you know, or then all of a sudden they get a chief privacy mm-hmm. officer and hire consultants, and, right. you know, want to restore the image. Sometimes it's too late. And through part of that process, therefore, com- companies, you know, begin to self-regulate in a meaningful way. Um, I think a good, good couple good examples of that is, you know, in recent weeks we've heard about, you know, HP and the pretexting, and yeah. and the laws are are really not quite up to speed with what's happened. So that yeah. has been the publicity. But previous to that, you know, when we had the big choice point issues, yeah. and and they got a wonderful privacy officer, Carol DeBatiste, who who came on our show, mm-hmm. um, that was due to law. You know, it was like sure. kind of like what you were saying. California sure. passed a law, yeah. and and Choice Point had to uh, adhere to that law with sure. regard to California citizens. And then, of course, they had to comply really with the rest of the country, even though the, yeah. those states didn't have it. So, you know, th- there, there's always some standard that is is set up, or like you said, the publicity has been very helpful in in bringing these issues to to a higher consciousness among mm-hmm. the, the public. Yes, and I think they're increasing. And one of the uh, assumptions behind this new work I'm doing on advocacy and activism is that the number of um, you know, public disputes about privacy has been increasing in, in both frequency and intensity. Um, and that, this, I think, uh, you know, is um, is interesting and, and worthy of some analysis. Um, uh, now, you know, gonna, Colin, that's the, reason, that's the reason I wanted a privacy show, is because I felt that, that 
you know, uh, many of our privacy laws, there's no private right of action. For example, under Graham yeah. Leach-Bliley, yeah. there's no private right of action. So you can't sue. Only the federal agencies can take action, and they don't have the resources. And they don't have the resources. Right. right. Yeah. And, and we, we have, there's been, um, in our Fair Credit Reporting Act, there's been some new amendments, but a lot of the new amendments preempted state law and also precluded a private right of action. Right. And so looking for something that can have some teeth or enforcement, it's, you're right, it's the media, and that's why we've got this privacy show. This is why you're on here. Good for you. <laughs> right. Okay, so, so how, what should c- consumers do, you know, in different, con- what, what, should, what do you tell people to do in your own country to protect their privacy? Um, it, it's very easy to give gratuitous advice to ordinary people who've got a million other things that they've got to worry about, right? You know? <laughs> right. Uh, um, it's very easy to give gratuitous advice and say that people should be, you know, deleting their cookies from their hard drive and getting privacy and enhancing technology and all the rest of, rest of it. Um, you know, it, it, uh, and people should do that, you know, if they're concerned, um, but the problem is not really at the consumer level. My view is it's not a consumer education problem. And right. here I differ to some extent with, with what others have been saying, that, you know, if only we sort of educated people and sort of, sort of you know, told them to, you know, to be far more careful about the way they give up their personal information. Well, yes, you know, That's people should be more, more careful. But the, the, <laughs> real, the real job is to, is to educate elites, Right. Educate people in business about these subjects. Educate people in government. Right. Um, you know, uh, that's, that's the real task, I think. My well, own... you're right, because look, the consumers are really, they have no power over m- much of this, right? I mean, they be... have no control over this information. So you're absolutely right. It has to be the, the, the really uh, leaders in companies and the leaders in our governments. Yeah. It's, it's not true that people have no control. You know, uh, there are things that you can do, uh, but, but it's, it's so complicated and it's so time-consuming, particularly when you're working online, you know. Um, yes. and, and, it's, and the technology that's, that's developed in order to, you know, surreptitiously capture bits of information about you online is getting more and more sophisticated and right. hidden. The spyware problem, the spam problem, the phishing problem, and all of that, that um, I don't understand it. And sure. quite frankly, you know, I uh, probably, uh, this is a, probably a pretty silly thing to say on air, but probably my computer's not properly protected, you know? Right. Um, and yet I know about this subject. Right. And, and yet continuously... I mean, um, how much can we keep up with this? How much can, how, how much can you keep up with it? Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's not... Um, uh, you know, it's not a question of um, consumer education, it's a question of business education. But people should, you know, um, delete their cookies from their hard drive, you know, um, set the privacy preferences high on the, you know, if you're using Microsoft Windows to um, set, set the privacy toolbar as, as you want it, be aware of that. I'm not sure how effective those measures are. Um, you know, keep your passwords in a secure place. You know, all of those sort of common sense, common sense issues. You know, Colin, and, and aware that if you're networked, yeah. you know, you're you're vulnerable. Exactly. Um, and um, you know, 
protect And those kinds too. of things you, you can't even do the other day. This is funny. This just happened to me yesterday. Yeah. I, I decided to, you know, uh, raise the bar on, on you know, not allowing cookies, right? And mm-hmm. we were trying to, my secretary was trying to send through mm-hmm. UPS, and we had to change the setting. Otherwise, we couldn't send through UPS because we were del- we were not accepting their mm-hmm. cookies. So, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as you try and do certain things, right, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you have to undo it, and then you have to mm-hmm. redo it. So mm-hmm. I, I think... A lot of these things, which I try and keep up as much as I can with my spyware and my, you know, mm-hmm. running my virusware, those those are well and good. But I think, you know, you're absolutely right. We have to make it easier for people because you and I are not computer geckies, you know, computer consultants. We're, you're trying to, to look at the, the very broad and the very important issues of privacy globally. And and people are trying to run their households, take care of their children, work all day, and then come home and be a a techie. You know, it's it's really impossible. Right. So right. I just want to introduce you again because people who are driving by are probably wondering oh, who is this brilliant professor that we're speaking to. So we are speaking with Professor Colin Bennett, who is a professor at the department in the Department of Political Science at the University of Victoria in Victoria, Canada, which is such a beautiful place. I've been there. Okay. It's it's gorgeous. I went to Vancouver and Victoria on my way up to Alaska on a cruise, ah. and it was uh, a gorgeous place. We well, like living here. Well, you should. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so let's get back to this. Um. Are the biggest challenges today from government or from business? I <coughs> can't tell the difference. Uh, uh, 30 years ago, I would have said from government. Um, 10 years ago, I would have said from business. Now, I think, I think you can't tell the difference. And I think do you the think distinctions between yeah. government and business are, are, are broken down. Right. I think there are all kinds of institutions in the middle, you know. Right. I think uh, the sharing of information between government and business is so extensive, so pervasive, uh, that um, you really do need to have common rules for both. And um, uh, so, you know, it's, uh, and, and this is seen in the, the various issues that have arisen since 9-11, um, where uh, American law enforcement has been, you know, using proprietary databases from certain businesses in right. order to develop, um, uh, you know, profiling uh, methods and so on and so forth. Um, you know, the, the the boundaries between the two, if ever they were one, are now completely gone, in my view. Right. You know, when you were talking about the United States uh, Privacy Act of 1974, mm-hmm. you know, it, it basically says that there will be no uh, private databases. Mm-hmm. So, so the way they got around it is that the United States government buys databases from the mm-hmm. commercial data brokers. Sure. And so you're right. It's it's such a and, and public- you know typically what people say in a, in a, in in opposition to that argument is, oh well, yes, but you know you can make a choice in the marketplace. You know what bank you use, what credit card company you use what you know and so on and so forth but you know you don't have any choice about whether you pay your taxes well yes and yes and no right Right. Um, the reality is that you know you don't most banks have pretty similar practices about about privacy and you know you if you choose one bank over another most people are not making that choice on the basis of their privacy practices Um, there are certain things that we just certain ways that we have to engage with the private private sector and therefore we don't really have a choice right. um it's an illusion and, and consequently um 
you know, uh, I, I don't see uh, that, that that argument is, is, is valid anymore. So in terms of, of how, and I don't know if you've done any real, um, you know, surveys in Canada or different countries, but, yeah. you know, what are the perceptions? Do you think that in reality people are more concerned about privacy today than they were 20 years ago, or do they understand it differently? What's, what's that whole role? Um, I think what I see in the surveys that I read in different countries over different periods of time is that there's been a strong and pervasive and worrying sense amongst most people in the general public, um, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, etc., about this issue. Uh, they feel threatened. Uh, they feel that their privacy is being eroded in ways that they don't fully understand from organizations that they may not have a relationship with. So there's a sort of vague sense that privacy is under threat from a set of impersonal forces, technological, bureaucratic, corporate, etc., over which people don't have any control anymore. Now, the sources of that, those views, I think vary. And the extent of the views, the intensity of the views vary. They vary by country, they vary by gender, they vary by generation, um, they vary by culture, they vary by, by ethnicity. And there's you know, we can't, don't have time to get into all of the sort of complications there. But I don't think it's true to say that people's concern about this issue has diminished in the slightest. I think it's strong. I think it's vague, poorly understood. Um, and I think that, you know, some people are more concerned about their health privacy and about their financial privacy, and those things shift as well. But... Um, most people have a gut instinct about this issue and know that something is wrong when they see it. And um, they respond in different ways. Uh, but it's still, in my judgment, a very, very powerful uh, question and issue in all Western societies um, that governments and businesses have got to take very, very seriously. You know, I, I read something recently about some protests in China because, you know, yeah. the, in China they have really tried to keep people from getting information on the Internet. And there yeah. have been a lot of these anonymous blogging in China yeah. that even they're recognizing that yeah. they have a right to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Um, uh, what's happening in China is fascinating. I was actually there last year, and I gave two or three lectures about this about this subject. And um, and you weren't thrown out or killed. Sorry, I said, and you were not thrown out or killed. Oh, not not, <laughs> not in the slightest. I mean, I was initially I was initially somewhat circumspect about how I would advance the the, the, the arguments, you know. Right. And I was given advice that you know it wouldn't be a good idea to mention human rights, <laughs> um, and so I didn't. So I talked about it in more general terms and more commercial terms. But mainly, my audience were young students mm. who are highly intelligent, highly articulate in English, um, and um, who you know were you know, feeling somewhat threatened, you know, uh, were concerned about the uh, unsolicited emails they were getting, the unsolicited messages they were getting on their cellular telephones, were concerned about the video surveillance cameras. Um, so a big kind of generational difference. Um, but, you know, it, it demonstrates that, that once um, technology becomes pervasive and once people 
begin to get middle class values and property and bank accounts and health insurance and pay taxes and all the rest of it there are a whole range of privacy issues that immediately come come to the fore and that's you know happened in you know advanced western societies i don't like those categories but you know and it's and it's beginning to happen in china and other countries as well and i i found that really interesting now, you know, when you said they, they didn't want you to talk about human rights, to some extent, privacy is really part of human rights, isn't it? Oh, indeed, yes. yes, it's, it's, yes. <laughs> you just couldn't say that word. Well, I, I made a judgment that I would, you know, be careful in the way I, you know, advance the issue, but perhaps I needn't have been quite so, you know, circumspect. Yeah, yeah. So, so we um, we're talking here, and we only have a few minutes left. We're talking here with Professor Colin Bennett, who is the co-author with Charles Rabb of the Governance of Privacy: Policy Instruments in Global Perspective. With just these last few minutes that we have, can you give us some suggestions in terms of what we should be doing besides reading your book? In terms of really understanding the whole issue of privacy more. Lloyd says we have four minutes, so with a professor to only give you four minutes, I know it's short, but give us that and then your website. (laughs) Okay, sure. Uh, How we should be understanding it more. Um, There is is an enormous amount written on this subject, you know. Uh, There is an enormous amount, um, a, a huge number of conferences, people who write and talk about this subject, you know, forever going to conferences, and all of that's great. So it's, it's not as if there's not enough debate. Right. I think one thing I would say, however, is that the media debate, I mean, your show accepted, has not been particularly sophisticated on these questions. And, and uh, the, the mainstream media has a very um, ambivalent attitude towards this question, for, right. for obvious reasons. Um, and the way that... Um, the issues get debated in the media uh, always leave something to be desired, in my view. Um, we still tend to talk about, you know, Big Brother watching you, and that message, you know, right. is just it's, getting yeah. very, very... It's off point. ...worn, yeah. you yeah. know, uh, trite. Um, and so there's something that needs to be said about the way that the way that the, these issues get get uh, debated in, debated in, in, in the media. So we but need some more I, letters to the editor, huh? Uh, well, and op-ed pieces. I think also, you know, in those countries where there are, you know, laws and where there are, and it, and also uh, those people who know about the issue, you know, you and I, and who know what the rules say, have got to um, hold organizations to their responsibilities. Um, most organizations, um, private sector, public sector are expected now to say what they do with your personal information and to do what they say, right? Um, And oftentimes, however, that is ignored. And people don't, you know, look at privacy policies and understand, try and understand what organizations are actually saying and hold people to account. And I think those of us who are you know, what I would describe as the gatekeepers in this movement, people who, you know, like yourself and myself and the advocacy movement who who know something about what the rules say uh, can do a better job in the United States as well as elsewhere of mm, generating complaints to companies. um, Writing to our senators. Yes, indeed. 
um, and um, saying, look, you know, you've said that you will provide me access with my personal information. Can I please have it? Yeah. Uh, you know, very often um, companies and, and agencies make promises that they will give people personal information because they know that nobody's going to exercise those rights. Right, so i got to keep my promise to Lloyd that, that yeah. I'm going to turn you off in a, just a couple seconds here, but okay. I want to thank you so much, Colin. And we are um, going to tell people to make sure that they get the governance of privacy and go to your website, which is uh, w. Well, let's see, it's what a, is it? It's a long address. Okay, <laughs> just go to our website because at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy we have your website and we will have to talk to you again next year and thank you so much for joining us uh, you're very welcome all right you've been listening to kuci 88.9 fm in irvine and kuci.org on the net this is Privacy Piracy. I'm your host, and my engineer is Lloyd Boshaw. To find out more about our previous guests, listen to the audio archives, and see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, go to www.kuci.org slash privacypiracy. See you next week, Wednesday at 5 to 6 p.m. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.